Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 215 with Ann Bogle. Ann has heroically ventured through numerous personality types, assessments, framework, goodies, and is distilling some of that goodness for us here today. So you're going to learn one, how the Myers-Briggs, StrengthsFinder, Enneagram, Five Love Languages, Highly Sensitive People, and more enlighten you in their own special ways. Two, how to use personality types to better your relationships. And three, the potential dangers of abusing personality frameworks. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep215. But now let's hear Anne's story. Anne Bogle is a resident blogger, bookworm, and big question asker at Modern Mrs. Darcy. She wrote Reading People, where she shares her own experience with the personality frameworks she loves the most, the ones that have made the biggest difference in her own life. She walks you through seven different frameworks, explaining the basics in a way you can actually understand, sharing personal stories about how what she learned made a difference in her life, and showing people how it could make a difference in theirs as well. Now, here's Anne. Anne, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into your book, Reading People, and have a chat about it. But I understand that your history with writing started well before this book, and you were actually victorious in a young author's competition. Tell us a story about the competition and what your story in it was about. Oh, you know, I really wish I still had that story bound in 1980s plaid contact paper. It would be a beautiful thing. I'm pretty sure that involved a dove that got hit by a car. And I'm also pretty sure I might have borrowed or completely plagiarized the story from a show on Nickelodeon. Oh, wow. (laughs) I made it super sappy, though, to put my own spin on it. Well, you probably didn't have a photographic memory of what was happening on Nickelodeon such that a paraphrase would probably be operating as opposed to full-time plagiarism. Although I do recall, as children, it seemed like, like kids just sort of naturally tended to plagiarize segments. Like I remember whenever there was a genie or wishes involved, they would just recapitulate the rules from Aladdin. I was like, why do those have to be the rules for the genie every time? What's up with that? In the tradition of second graders everywhere, you tell other people's stories (laughs) when you can't think of your own. Okay, fair enough. Well, you've been telling a story when it comes to reading people. And I love personality stuff myself. And I don't want to bias you. You could absolutely slam any personality typology or assessment or framework you like. I am a certified Myers-Briggs practitioner, but you can tell me what you hate about it. That's fine. So I want to hear though for you, of all the things you could have written about, why did you choose personality issues? Well, first of all, I'm a total personality geek. I have never met... Hmm. I was going to say I've never met an assessment I didn't like. That might be pushing it a bit far, but I'm always game to explore a new framework. I've just found them so valuable myself and have seen the way that changing the way you understand yourself can really change your day-to-day life. And that's so powerful. And so often it's so simple to do. And I was really inspired by the possibility of being able to take 
that information and make it accessible to a broader audience. Because when I get talking to people about personality, and I have been for years on my blog and just in person over coffee with friends, something I hear all the time is, I just don't understand how it's supposed to work. And none of the frameworks are that hard to understand well enough that you can really put them into practice. And that's what I really tried to do in reading people, to make those frameworks accessible so that you could read a chapter and put it into practice in your life instead of have to become certified as a Myers-Briggs professional Uh, uh, (laughs) to change your life. Right. That's a fair point. It doesn't take weeks of training or certification or learning to put it into effect and and see an impact. So I'd love to hear then what kinds of insights or influences, kinds of real world benefits have you had from having learned and applied the insights from these frameworks? Oh, so many. So I first learned about Myers-Briggs as a student where the implications are numerous. I'm married. I have children. I have a job. I have neighbors. Any of those. A big one I've been thinking about lately as a writer with a deadline, not for reading people, but for on an ongoing basis, is understanding my propensity to put things off because I am a P. And just knowing that this is true about myself, and it's fine to feel that way, but that doesn't mean it's not okay to take action. That's huge for me on an ongoing basis. Oh, fantastic. So you're talking about just sort of a relief in terms of you're not like bad or broken or sort of damaged in some way. It's just like, oh, this is just kind of how my brain operates and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also been really good to know that this is how I tend to feel, which is I hate to have decisions made. Like I really am hesitant to close loops on lots of things. And that's my natural tendency. And that's fine. But that isn't my body telling me like, you're not ready or you shouldn't do that. It's just the way I'm going to feel. And that really frees me to go ahead and do the right thing because I don't think, oh, like that's a big warning sign from my subconscious. It's not my intuition speaking. That's just my personality and it's fine and I can move forward and thank it for its help. Oh, yes, that is a relief. And so, well, I'd love to dig into it a little bit here. So you covered seven personality frameworks and boy, you know, I'm sure we could talk for hours about them, but maybe if you could give us the one to two minute rundown for each of them. What was the framework? What is kind of cool about it? And what is sort of a powerful insight that emerged from it? Well, first I looked at introverts and extroverts, which as you know, is a subset of Myers-Briggs in many ways, but I thought could stand on its own two feet. And what I really learned and what I want other people to take away from reading people is that introverts and extroversion isn't just about being social or shy. It's about how you manage your energy. That's big for a lot of people to understand. I took a look at highly sensitive people. Is this a framework you're familiar with, Pete? Highly sensitive people. It's ringing a bell, but I don't have much depth. Tell me more. This is life-changing for a lot of people. And it was for me when I first encountered it. This is a term coined by Elaine Aaron. She's a psychologist, I believe. And what she did was she discovered through her research that 15 to 20% of the population, and this applies to your Labrador and your panda bear too, not just human beings, have very finely tuned nervous systems. So if you've had to wear tube socks because the seams in your socks never sit quite right, or if the network news makes you feel like you were just going to die trying to shoulder the weight of all the world's sorrows on you, or if lights and sounds in like a really loud skating rink make you feel like you're losing your mind, it's quite possible that you are a highly sensitive person. And this isn't good or bad necessarily, but it does mean that your nervous system, like your nervous system, 
not just your mind, is more finely attuned than the rest of the general population. And it changes the way you interact with the world. And this is life-changing for a lot of people to realize why they feel like they're losing their minds if three people are talking to them at the same time or why they can't watch action movies. So fascinating. And so then... So we could actually see differences in their nerve cells, like under a microscope or biochemically different to this 15 to 20% of folks who are highly sensitive. Yes, literally biologically different. That is wild. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Continue. The next one I looked at is the five love languages from Gary Chapman, where he talks about how we each express love in different ways. And if we want the people in our lives who we love to feel loved by us, we need to speak that love in a language they can understand, a language like quality time or physical touch or acts of service. Absolutely. And we had a chat earlier on the podcast with Dr. Paul White, who talked about appreciation languages, kind of bringing that into the world of work with the appropriate modifications. It's funny, physical touch, <laughs> everyone is is uncomfortable with, but like a, a high five or a fist bump really does do a lot for some folks in the workplace. Yes, that's exactly what those languages of appreciation are, is it's Steve Chapman taken into the workplace. Okay, cool. What else? I looked at Kiersey's temperaments from David Kiersey. Some people know his book or know his work from the book, Please Understand Me Too. Or if you've read Shakespeare, how we all have melancholy and choleric and phlegmatic, how we have bile and phlegm. Right, yes. Kiersey is the updated version. So according to Kiersey, we're all artisans or guardians, or he has four types. And it's... Not exactly the same as Myers-Briggs, but it's very similar. So he assigns four two-letter descriptions based on four of the 16 Myers-Briggs traits. And he uses the terms in slightly different ways, but he worked with Briggs and Myers and the systems are more alike than different. And if you are a personality geek who's had a really hard time wrapping your head around Myers-Briggs because 16 combinations is a lot of possibilities, Kiersey is simplified enough that it really clicks with a lot of people for the first time. That was my own experience with Kiersey's temperaments. Yeah, that's cool. And it's so funny is if you dig into the Kiersey temperament sorter and those notions of having two sort of Myers-Briggs things going on it for like intuition and thinking is one type or, or sensing and judging combined becomes another. It becomes intriguing how you can just sort of march that across many sort of four-part personality types, such as true colors or, or on and on. So I think that's a cool one to provide an entry point as kind of like a master skeleton key to many sort of four-part types that have similar roots here. Yes, it is such a wonderful stepping stone. But even if you stopped with Kiersey, understanding your temperament and the temperaments of those you love and live with and work with, it makes such a huge difference in understanding how people are inclined to relate to each other. Absolutely. Well, keep it coming. What else? All right. Myers-Briggs is next. You know all about this. Well, I hope so. Well, but you tell me though. So once you go a little bit deeper on this one, a touch in terms of what did you find amazing about the Myers-Briggs versus frustrating about the Myers-Briggs? Well, the frustrating thing about the Myers-Briggs is how easy it is to get wrong because it's a self-diagnostic tool. It is up to you as an individual to determine your own type. And so many people don't understand what the words means. Like in your everyday vocabulary, we have a definition for sensing and we have a definition for judging. And it is not the same that it is according to Briggs and Myers. And that's one of the reasons I talk about how if you really want to nail your type, you should seek out someone like yourself who is a trained professional. But 
I hope my book is the next best thing by walking you through exactly what the terminology means and what we're going for and what you can hope to understand from this information. Oh, certainly. And I became a huge fan of 16personalities.com as well, which is so interesting because in a way, it's totally like, I guess you might call it a knockoff or an originally created psychographic assessment that that uses some similar terminology. But like the graphics are so good and the descriptions are so good. It's so on point. I will actually, with Myers-Briggs clients, say, okay, here is one description that we have. And also take a look for some follow-up reading right over here. And so it's so good in terms of being able to get a pretty decent sense and navigate through some of the challenges of, ooh, am I more of this or more of that? And it's free, which is pretty cool. Yes. And that is a great point of entry for a lot of people that 16 personalities, because it does give you a nice flavor for how different individuals really see the world differently based on their Myers-Briggs type. I love 16 personalities. However, it can also confuse a lot of people because no one 100% matches a somewhat generic type description online. And that's why in the book, one of the frameworks I go into, it's like a sub-framework, I guess. I explore the Myers-Briggs cognitive functions because these cognitive processes, and I know that sounds like a super scary word, but it just means the way your brain works, the software it's running, they are really what the Myers-Briggs four-letter types are meant to explain. They were never meant to stand on their... I'm an INFP. Like That means something very specific in Myers-Briggs speak, and it refers to the order your brain accesses the cognitive functions it uses. And there are eight of them, and we all turn to four on a regular basis in a declining order of preference. And the order of the functions really determines your type. And at the point I said cognitive functions, I'm sure a lot of people went, oh, la, 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 la. But I break it down in a way that is really not as hard to understand as it could be, and really is what you need to know if you're going to determine your Myers-Briggs type once and for all, instead of look at 16 personalities and be like, well, I'm not sure. That's absolutely true. And well, you've done the world of service when it comes to making it simple to understand, because I remember even getting the certification, there were some times where like, okay, I got my dominant, I got my auxiliary, I got my tertiary, I got what? (laughs) You know, so there are a few moments where we had to, okay, start from the top, but you're right. It's so handy when you zero in on what is that, what what does this terminology mean? Because it could feel abstract for a bit. So I'm right with you there. It seems like there is tremendous value, but also requires a, a bit of investment to unlock it right there. That is true, but it's not as hard as it seems. And luckily you don't need to learn the details of how all eight functions operate. You just need to know yours. And something I didn't realize until I really finally bit the bullet and dug into the cognitive functions, I did find they were not nearly as scary as I had expected them to be, was that I've heard people say, ever since I found out about Myers-Briggs, like, well, I'm an I slash ENFP, or I'm INTJ some days and something else other days. And When you learn about the cognitive functions, you learn, nope, that is not how it works. And it's not like Myers-Briggs is necessarily the end-all be-all of describing human temperament. But according to this framework built by Briggs and Myers, you are one type. So if you really want to find out what that is, you got to dive into your functions. Okay. Thank you. And what's next? Next, we dive into the Clifton Strengths Finder, which is a tool that's familiar to people in the A lot of times in a corporate setting, it's used for team building. Sometimes it's used when you're hired. An organization my husband used to work at, everybody's strengths were posted on the wall. So I dive into how you can put that to work in your own life, no matter what you do. Like even if you don't work in a corporate setting, because according to the Clifton Strengths Finder, 
Work is just the stuff you have to get done, whether it's balancing the family budget or managing the kids at home or managing a S&P 500 corporation. It's the work you have to do. And so in the book, I explore how everybody has different strengths. And that's really eye-opening for a lot of people to realize that there are 30-something themes that can be developed into true areas of things that you are amazing at. That's how they define a strength, according to the Clifton Strengths Finder. And just seeing that you are awesome at five things, but that means there are 34 things you're not quite so great at, really frees you up to be grateful for what you can do, but also really grateful for what other people can do and to help you see where you need help in your work and in your life. Okay, in the finale. It's kind of a downer to some people. It's the Enneagram, which is enjoying, I think, much-deserved renaissance these days. It's getting a lot of attention. The Enneagram has been called a negative system because it is all about the area where you are weak. When this gets interpreted from a Catholic or Christian perspective, a lot of times your Enneagram type, they'll say that it's describing your besetting sin. There are nine types according to the Enneagram. And they all highlight a lack in your life, the key thing that you are afraid of, the things that motivate you deep down. And deep down, the things that motivate you, according to the Enneagram, are not fun and happy and shiny. Okay, understood. Well, I'd love to dig into a little bit of depth here because we had a Beatrice Chestnut talking about the Enneagram way back in episode 120, which was fun. And I had, I guess, not the greatest of introductions to the Enneagram myself. I just sort of walked away I remember the instructor said something like, and you can spend your whole life trying to figure out which of these nine you are. And I'm like, <laughs> well, then how is that helpful to me in the least? And so I don't know. I wasn't as impressed. And at least from what I heard in my introduction, it did not seem to have as much of a robust underlying data basis. But maybe, Anne, I am mistaken. Can you let us in on the sort of roots that speak to validity and reliability within the Enneagram? Oh, the Enneagram goes way back. This thing is thousands of years old, but it's only in the past hundred years or so that we have seen the widespread use of the Enneagram symbol and have really come to understand that it's representing nine types of people. But there is a theory that the nine types are based in part on the seven besetting sins. So I'm saying that wrong. Cardinal sins? Deadly the sins? The seven deadly sins. Okay. So it goes way back. As for the empirical data, that's interesting. You know, each of these personality frameworks appeals to people for different reasons. And I think the people who really want to see the statistical analysis are not the ones who land in the Enneagram camp. <laughs> but I know what you're saying. It took me a long time to discover my type. And that felt really frustrating for a long time. But once it clicks, it becomes such a useful tool. I've never really heard anyone say, I had this big epiphany. I figured out my Enneagram type and then I never thought about it again. It's the kind of thing that you tend to always notice, sometimes in a bad way. Like myself, I'm a nine and I can recognize when I'm slipping into an unhealthy level of nine-ness, which isn't pleasant, but is really, really good. And it's something I've especially found effective at work and as a podcaster. A nine having a bad day cannot steer a conversation back to where it needs to go. But I know that about myself and I know my propensity to sit back when other people are trying to take the lead in a way that's unhealthy, but still it's easier to do nothing. When I see myself doing that, I'm always thinking about what I've learned from the Enneagram that just because it's easy 
to get lazy. And so it's a situation where you need to like assert your personal boundaries. doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. So just depending on your type, I'm sure you're not a nine. Nobody can determine your Enneagram type, but you, but I'd be surprised to hear that about you. It can just provide a really useful way to self-check yourself. Of course, it's great for serious deep reflection also, but just the little, it provides you little questions to ask yourself. Like for me, where am I being lazy about boundaries today? It changes the way you see yourself in a way that's really useful for a lot of people. Okay. And so that you said only yourself can determine which type or number you fall on the Enneagram. And can you share, is there an assessment that is a good starting point or are you thinking, you know, not so much for the Enneagram? Yes, there is. The Enneagram Institute has some good tools online. They used to have a free test that was readily available and they just changed their website. I have not been able to find a link to the free test. But my favorite resource for determining your type is a book. It's called the Essential Enneagram and they provide a data-driven, you'll like this, (laughs) test based on statistical analysis of a lot of people who use the test to determine their types that walks you through some thought exercise to determine your type. So for example, when you start the assessment, you'll read descriptions of three types of people and you pick the one that you resonate with the most. And then you do that a series of times and that guides you into like three different types you could be and you narrow it down from there. But then the authors give you statistical data that they say, okay, so if you identified yourself as a seven, 78% of the time, that'll be correct. And then ultimately 11% people ended up being a four and 9% people ended up being a two. So you know where you're likely to go wrong and you know how likely you were to have gotten your type right the first time. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Well, this is a lovely rundown of these and it's fun. You gave me something new, the highly sensitive people. That's something I'm excited to really dig into and explore as that's something I've just barely heard about, but not at this level of robustness. So you gave some kind of benefits, some cool things, some pro tips when it comes to rocking and rolling with these. Could you share maybe any cautionary tales or notes like how much is too much? Are these tools abused and misused in ways we should be cautious? Oh, absolutely. And if you are a personality junkie, I'm sure you've heard at some point somebody drop a line that says, oh, I could never do that because I am a... And you can fill in the blank with whatever you... I'm a certain Myers-Briggs type. I'm a certain Enneagram type. I have certain strengths or I don't have certain strengths. And these are just tools. Like They're meant to show you things that are true about yourself but they are not your truth and your personality is not your destiny. It's just a tool. Well, your personality is... What if my personality is that I am a tool? (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. Jerk is not a personality type. (laughs) Although sometimes it feels that way. (laughs) Would that be discouraging? (laughs) I'd like to take that assessment. You come back from the Clifton Strengths Finder says, your top strength is being a jerk. Like, oh, oh, that hurts. So that's not one of the strengths for the record, if anyone's listening and wondering. Okay, so there's some caution there is like, don't allow yourself to be limited. Like, oh, I could never do that based on the results of this. So that's a great pointer. And now I'd love to hear maybe an inspirational note. You talked about how these are generally quite helpful on a number of dimensions. Could you maybe share a specific tale of yourself or a reader or someone you know who picked up a particular insight from one or more of these tools and walked away transformed in a really cool way. Sure. I just got a message from a friend who had read the book, someone who was fluent in personality language of all kinds. And she said, I almost skipped the highly sensitive person chapter because I knew what that was and I knew it wasn't me, but I read it and I thought that like she loves action movies. 
and lights and noises. And she thought that's what it meant to be highly sensitive, to be sensitive to those things. So she read it and she said, I just had no idea how emotions could be a factor in the highly sensitive person scheme. And that is so me and explains so many things about my life that have made me difficult to live with sometimes and really hard on myself. And now I know, like now I can change because I see exactly what's going on and I actually have the power to change it. I just didn't know what was driving that behavior. And I thought that was a great story. So she didn't actually do anything. She read a chapter of a book and it opened her eyes, but that allowed her to change her daily rhythms in a way that really changed her life and her relationships. Very cool. Well, Anne, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Yeah, I would just say that you don't need to learn all this stuff at once. Just pick a framework, dive in. You can really read a chapter. You can read up a little bit about yourself and change your life. Like learning a little bit about yourself is not always easy, but it is easy to just take one little step and it's totally worth it. Excellent. All right. Well, for now, tell me. A favorite quote? I dwell in possibility, Emily Dickinson. Oh, lovely. And how about a favorite book? Oh, man. Did you say A? And what should I read next? (laughs) (laughs) How about when I just finished, I loved The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath. So excited they have another book out. This was a really, really interesting look on how to craft on purpose moments that matter for yourself or for others. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Oh, my Instant Pot. Oh, yes. I love the Instant Pot. Favorite recipe or item you find yourself going to again and again with the Instant Pot? Well, this afternoon, I cooked a whole chicken that had been in the bottom of my freezer for six months with the Instant Pot because the internet said I could, but I was skeptical and it worked. And so I used that chicken in like a homemade fake curry involving powder and paste and a can of coconut milk and that chicken... So it's easy and it's always good and everybody eats it if there's rice involved. I'm not a rice eater, but I have kids and they love carbs. Well, and it is just so dirt simple. And what's really cool is it's hard to screw up in the sense of, oh no, I undercooked it or oh no, I overcooked it. It's just sort of like, hey, it is wonderful. Just the way the recipe book said it would be. And so I just think that's so cool. I love things that are hard to screw up. Absolutely. And how about a favorite habit? Walking the dog. And tell me more. Well, we have a puppy and the puppy makes me get outside, get some fresh air, even if it's raining, not keep my butt in my chair all day. As useful as that is sometimes for someone who works at a computer, it can also be misery if you never get up. It makes you walk, it makes you think, it makes you talk to the neighbors. I love having a puppy for that reason. Plus she's quit chewing everything at this point. So that matters too. Perfect. And tell me, is there a particular nugget that you share in either your books or your podcast or your talking to people, just something you say that makes people really nod their heads in agreement, resonate and say, and you're a genius. (laughs) Okay. Something I say a lot. How about it's okay to stop reading a book you're not enjoying? So I am feeling a little bit of a release right now as you say that. (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. Oh, thank you. And Anna, if folks want to learn more about you or get in touch, where would you point them? They can find me online at annbogle.com. It's Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. I also have been blogging since 2011 at modernmrsdarcy.com. And my books and reading podcast is What Should I Read Next on iTunes. Perfect. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes. Learn a little bit about yourself. It makes all the difference. 
Perfect. Well, Anne, thank you so much for taking this time and sharing these perspectives. I'm excited for listeners who have heard of one or two of these frameworks to know about all of them and to see uh, what kind of transformational insights will emerge from that. Well, thank you for having me. I am too. I really liked the sense of peace that Anne was exuding when she talked about sort of the insight to realization folks receive when they use some of these tools. That bit of, that's just my personality and it's fine. I can move forward and thank it for its help. And I think that's pretty cool. And one thing that I've been noticing lately in terms of my personality is that it can be a real stressor for me when I feel like under-resourced to be able to do a good job on something, which is totally shows up in Myers-Briggs world as people who prefer extroversion, intuition, healing and judging, ENFJs, if you will. That's uh, something that impacts us all the more strongly and it's for real. So I think that's pretty handy to note. Hey, not everyone experiences that as as strongly or profoundly. Hmm. So it sort of opens up the door a little bit in terms of feeling like you have a little bit of a power or a choice or autonomy in that mix. So that's just one of many insights that comes up from this stuff. So I hope you engage in some of these tools and Hey, I do Myers-Briggs workshops. So if you have budget, I'd love to come see you and your team and we'll have a day or half day of fun. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we've referenced, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F215. And I hope you'll push subscribe. If you haven't already, you'll hear from our next guest. It is Nate Regeer. He is talking about some of this conflict stuff that can show up with different personalities and how to engage in those conversations well and smoothly. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 